we did last time. We came from the same passage of Scripture. And we'll be on the, the, the same one today because we're, we're doing variations on a theme, the theme of rest. And we'll complete that next month. Every single year, we recognize four seasons. And the season we're in now, during each season, we, we emphasize a certain theme that we want to build into the life and DNA and culture of every individual in, in our, of course, our churches. And, and we feel like those themes, as they become living realities, that will just flourish in the kingdom and be and do all that God wants for us. And, and so one of those themes that we recognize, December, January, February, every single year of our existence, unless God says otherwise, we will emphasize this theme of rest. And, and you know, I'll define it further in a little bit, but when I'll say something now just to qualify it. We're not talking about going on a, just a, a vacation, though that can be a part of rest. In fact, we, we took several weeks off just now where our house group leaders didn't have to do anything. They didn't meet unless it was informally uh, just to give them a break, to give everybody a break and just to make a statement, too. We're not just trying to run a ministry machine. We can afford to take some time off and be refreshed. So I believe in that physically, you know. Uh, but, but really what rest we're talking about is the rest that's in the spirit. It's a union with Jesus that's actually real and practical that sets our spirits at rest in God. Because only then are we liberated actually to walk in the spirit. So spiritual rest is not passive. It's active. We may even refer to these uh, texts next week. Uh, John 5, for instance. In John chapter 5, you don't have to turn there now. That's not what I'm preaching on. Though I'll probably wind up preaching on it as part of my introduction. But um, not really. I'm just kidding, but that wasn't that funny. It wasn't really meant to be funny. So don't worry about not laughing. Just don't feel awkward. I don't. <laughs> I'm at rest. <laughs> and plus, I'm used to it. <laughs> but... Um, Jesus was persecuted. Literally, that's the word used there. He wasn't just criticized. He was persecuted for healing on the Sabbath, a day of rest. And Jesus' response was, my father's working till now, and I'm working. It's like, you want Sabbath? I'm going to make this more controversial. Not only did I just heal him on a day that you said we should be inactive, I'm, I'm going to declare. I'm not even going to explain it at first. I'm just going to declare, actually, my father's working on your Sabbath. And I'm working on your Sabbath. See, the key to Sabbath is not that we're just passive. The key to Sabbath is that we're at rest from dead works. We're at rest from the life that's old and temporary and has no eternal value. To be at rest from our dead works, to be at rest from sin, to be at rest from what is old, that is genuine rest, but it doesn't mean you're not active in the new works of the kingdom of heaven, which is exactly what Jesus was saying. You know, God rested on the seventh day, but he rested from the creation that we have now. You know, he's still active in creation, but the work of the original creation, the work of doing that for six days is over. What's coming is a new creation. So God's at rest from making the old creation. It's got set in motion. It's perpetual up to a point. But one day it will be completely renewed because God's in Sabbath when it comes to the old, the old creation. But the new creation is a whole other matter. So if we're at rest from the old, it means we're activated in the new. 
If we're at rest in terms of being um, under the tyranny of the flesh or sin, if we're at rest from all things, that means we're now under the rule of the Spirit and can be active in the realm of the Holy Spirit, the, doing the works of God in, in, in genuine, passionate, holy love, performing miracles like Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, when I was doing those works of the kingdom, I was celebrating the Sabbath because I'm at rest from the old and I'm doing the new. In Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new under the sun. That's the old creation. But there's plenty of new above the sun. God's at work, always doing a new thing in the spirit. So when we're in the spirit, we're at rest. Amen? Even if we're active. So that's what I'm talking about. And we want to emphasize this theme as I'll develop it a little bit more here today. You'll see why we value it so much that we're going to emphasize it for three months every year. We, we won't, you know, when we, when we change seasons, we don't forget about the other things we we talked about during the previous season. We just assume they're being built in to our blood and they're continuing on. And by the way, with that, um, many of you, I'm sure, already got the notice from the house church leaders. For those, of the, for those of you that haven't and you're joining with us, we're starting a Daniel fast tomorrow. That's not last second enough for you. We, we were announcing it by email previously. But um, we're starting a Daniel fast tomorrow. Basically, no meats or sweets. Of course, it's voluntary, so you can join us if you wish. Um, and there's other details in a Daniel fast that house church leaders can give you the information if they haven't already. We have some links if you want to be really strict in your diet. Of course, like I said, it's voluntary, so if you want to go deeper and put more restrictions or just fast food during part of it or all of it, obviously that's up to you. If you want or need to do less than what we're calling for, we're not trying to make anything mandatory that's not our place. You're free to do that or mix it up as you wish. But we are asking for the next 21 days for you to join us in some measure. Our main goal is just to get closer to the Lord. But also, secondarily, we really want to be reignited. Even if we don't need it, we want to be reignited in fire in our hearts to be passionate about the Lord and to prepare ourselves, our homes, our churches a constantly prepare a holy habitation for him to dwell in and not just visit on occasion. So that's the purpose of the fast. Uh, like I said, you can communicate with the house church leaders, and they'll get you the information, or I can if you get with me on Facebook or whatever. Yeah, so, so do something. Tomorrow's the 7th, and, and then it's I think the 27th is then the last day of the fast, if I remember that right. You know, you can count that out on your own, do whatever you want. But let's just join together uh, on, on, to, on some level to do this. Now, the negative end, meaning what we're negating is a food issue. I'm also asking on the positive end that we bolster up our prayer life and our time with God. So on the positive end during the fast, of course, these are things we're already doing. Uh, you can beef up your devotion in place of some of the times when you may have been eating least in the spirit of that, maybe get up earlier, go to bed later. If you're not already spending an hour with the Lord in prayer and the word, I'm asking you to reach that goal, at least during these 21 days, because it takes about 21 days to develop a habit. So you can do that, maybe meet it out to half an hour of prayer and half an hour in the word. If you're already doing that in more, well, then guess what you could do? You can notch it up with your own goal. I'm just asking everybody to make sure, like as a standard, we are connecting with God in community with him, 
for at least an hour a day in prayer, worship, intercession, and meditating on the Word. And I'd like for everybody to take a chunk of that, if you, if you speak, if you pray in tongues just in your private time, to just pray in tongues on fire for at least a chunk of that time every single day. And if you don't pray in tongues, just do whatever you want to do. That's great. But I would exhort you to just go ahead and do it by faith anyway and start speaking in tongues every day. It'll build up your inner person. That's what the Scripture teaches. And we want to be spirit-filled people. We don't want to just be theologically spirit-filled Man, you know, most Pentecostal churches aren't even uh, even slightly Pentecostal. There's not much evidence at all. And in some there are. Some there's much. And I don't know what league I'm in, but I at least don't want to just give it lip service. I at least want to try to have my heart poured out before the Lord and have him filling me. as like I'm giving him something to drink with my prayers. I want to be filled with the Spirit, be a spiritual person. Be a supernatural person, not just someone who's religiously a Christian in name only. That doesn't change anything. It doesn't do God any good. We need to be powerful in our prayers, powerful of powerful in our good works, and powerful in our miracles. We need the Spirit. And that takes cultivation. And it takes effort. That's not a popular word these days. But grace demands that we be diligent in Second Peter chapter 1. There has to be stewardship of what we have. You know what the Bible says about rest, just to tie this together with our theme? Be diligent to enter his rest. It takes effort to get past all the distractions to enter into that pristine and rarefied air called the rest of God. So let's, on the fast, let's not just do the negative. Let's do the positive. Let's look forward to this and experience a deeper communion and joy. I'm going to start in verse 25. Thank you, Bob, for all this random information. This is great. Some other random information for you last night. It's purely trivial. I thought you'd be interested that last night after midnight, I set my alarm for 6.30 p.m. Wasn't that smart? (laughs) Apparently, I planned on sleeping 18 and a half hours. But the Lord woke me up. (laughs) Not at 6.30, though. But at least I was able to get myself ready, bring the drum equipment some of it, and pray. Matthew eleven twenty five. just thought you'd be interested in knowing that. Pray for, pray for your leaders. Jesus, in verse 25 of Matthew 11, and we read this last time, he just pronounced woes on cities that would not repent. Cities in which he did most of his miracles. So one of the, one of the key responses... In fact, the fundamental response to the kingdom, no matter how powerfully it's being manifest, I mean, Jesus performing hundreds, probably thousands, probably many thousands of miracles, big and small, like a spring flowing in the spirit in these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, Capernaum, just multitude, multiplied thousands of miracles, but they did not turn to the Lord. They did, not, they did not turn away from selfish living, idols, and sin, and enter the kingdom. And so the, having the miracles was not enough. They still had to move their will, turn away from sin and idolatry and selfishness, and come into the kingdom. And because they did not, even though most of the miracles were, were done there, Jesus pronounced woes on these cities. So we're coming off of, or we're coming out of the wake of, in our passage, a, a real, a, a sharp rebuke, powerful woes 
You know, to this day in modern Israel, these cities that were that were judged by Jesus still do not. They were not rebuilt in any way like other cities have been. You can go visit them as a tourist, but there's no inhabitants. You can look at all the ancient little homes in Capernaum, you know, unearthed and see where, like where people lived. And there's some Catholic type of shrine on what tradition says was St. Peter's home. There's a synagogue where Jesus performed his miracles in the synagogue of Capernaum. It's built, it's, it's probably, I think, from the 4th century, but it's built on the ancient one where Jesus was. Awesome to stand in the synagogue to look out at the crystal uh, um, of Sea of Galilee and to realize, man, I could be standing on the exact spot where Jesus healed people and he cast that, well, that was Nazareth, but anyway, I'm sure he cast out demons in Capernaum too, where he healed, the, he, he healed people, you know, in, right here in this synagogue. It's awesome. And it's really a powerful feeling to be there. And yet to be in the midst of ruins, unrebuilt, because Jesus pronounced woe on that city. It's kind of like the awe and the sobriety are holding hands, and they're, they're, they're in your mind and emotions at the same time. And when Jesus pronounce a, pronounces a woe, he means business. So this is the seriousness of the context here. After he pronounces these woes, because the people did not repent, he then says this in verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So even though Jesus pronounced woes on those who were unwilling to repent, he still recognizes the Father's ways of working. It's like if, if people were too big in their britches to embrace the way I bring the kingdom, then woe to them. But I recognize my Father is at work. He's not going to respond to people who are too big in their britches. They're, they're too self-made. They're too strong in themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven in this new and, and refreshing and unexpected way. Instead, it's the people that are like little children that enter. They're open, they're honest, they're innocent. They believe what they're told by God, by, by their king. They recognize and discern it when they see it, and so they enter in. That's the spirit that Jesus is praising here. His father loves children. And so then he gives this call, which is our main text. In response to this, as if there's some who get it, some who don't, in verse 28, Jesus makes the call far and wide. It's a general call. He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, because I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Man, that's one of the most powerful passages of Scripture, I believe. And one of the keys to life in the kingdom. Last week we talked about this passage as it was in the context of Old Testament prophets who called their nation and the nations back to God. And they would use terminology uh, like this. 
First of all, they would call people back to God himself, right? And then secondly, when they came back to God, the, the prophets would, would promise those who repented, the, the prophets promised them rest, refreshing, renewal, abundance, provision, blessing on some level or in some fashion or, or another. Repentance always led to refreshing. So the first thing we do to enter into God's rest is we repent of sin. We repent where our lives have been self-ruled. And by the way, repentance is a gift. It is a blessing. It's the grace of God at work. It's not our religious works. It's a response to God's grace. It is a gift. And so we talked about the fact that, you know, God has called us to live a life of repentance. He has called us to turn away from sin and the things that distract us from him. And that's not something that we're going to get cued about. We're, we're going to be people of repentance. It's, it's demanded of those who would enter the kingdom, and it's a lifestyle of those who would be in it. Again, I find in popular teaching that what I'm saying right now is contradicted on the airwaves. But it's scriptural, so we're going to just go ahead with it, right? But here's the other side of repentance. It's not just what we come from. This is the key. This is what makes repentance. It's to whom we turn. Jesus' call for repentance is this. Come to me. Repentance is not defined merely by a change or amending of our ways. Repentance is defined by King Jesus. And in repentance, the violence of our of our of our internal turning, have to be just as violent coming toward the Lord as they are going away from, from that which we're leaving. In other words, developing a close and consistent relationship with Jesus in obedience is really what repentance is all about. It's what the kingdom is all about. And when that is cultivating, it creates, when it's cultivated, excuse me, it creates something in the human spirit called rest. You don't have to put yourself at rest. The Lord says, if you come to me, if you're weary and heavy burden, I will give you rest. So now this is what we're after. We value rest because rest means we're coming to Jesus and we're cultivating union with him. True union with the Lord creates in the human spirit rest from the things of this age that would tempt us and would distract us. And it makes us powerful so that we can then have clarity of mind to believe for kingdom things. If we're constantly distracted and muddled in our thinking by the things of this world, and we all have to battle this all the time, but if they dominate our thoughts, if our habits are not come to me, in, in terms of coming to Jesus, but these things are, are dominating our thoughts, then we won't have rest. Or the kind of rest we will achieve or seek will be something that God is not giving. It will be rest from something else, which is, again, where sin comes in. We're always seeking satisfaction. We're seeking some kind of connection with something greater. That's why people dope themselves on drugs, on alcohol, on entertainment, on uh, immoral relationships, on, on, on thrills that are born in rebellion rather than in actually connecting to the Lord. Right? So connecting with him creates rest in the human spirit. 
Connecting with the Lord releases rest in our spirit. The, the fundamental way to rest is to repent. And then to cultivate a life that's Jesus-centered. We'll talk more about this. But here's what we're keying on today. There is a virtue that Jesus identifies in himself that is a companion to rest. In fact, it is the virtue. It is a, the character trait that comes out when we're at rest. And it's called meekness. Okay, so meekness is the result of being at rest. And meekness is essential to the Christian life. It's essential. It is, if there's any attribute to cultivate, and I'll explain why I make such a big deal about this as we go, but if there's any one attribute we should be cultivating as a character trait in our lives, it's this character trait of meekness. Because meekness is the direct result of being at rest in the Lord. Meekness is the hallmark of Jesus Christ. Meekness in some ways is, and becoming a meek person is the essence of discipleship. Amen. I told you. Jesus said, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Now listen, he explains, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm meek. And that's important. This passage of scripture is echoing the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples to go make more disciples. He says, teach them all that I commanded you. Well, this is echoing it more from his point of view when he was still with them. He said, learn from me. So he's saying, hey, you you guys who are here now while I'm here, learn from me. Well, what's the key to learning? What is it about me? I'm meek. And I'm humble of heart. That's the product of the kingdom. A person who's tempered by the Lord. They're not just a Christian. They go to church, they identify with a certain religious faith. Big whoop. I'm talking about someone whose life exudes the peace of God. You and I can not fake that. People can be meek naturally. Or they may have a gentle spirit because their, their personality is that way or they're very satisfied in some way. They may be the calmest person you ever met but still have rebellion raging in their hearts. They may be passively violent. Or even a calm person who doesn't like violence, if, you know, if they're not submitted to the yoke of the Lord, their meekness may be genuine naturally, but it's not the meekness that Jesus is talking about here and that we're seeking to develop. We are talking about a meekness that's a temper of spirit that's the direct result of a unique connection to Jesus Christ and nothing else. So meekness, the word, the word itself, and, and the way it is often translated in the New Testament, is simply gentleness. Now, it goes much deeper than that, which is what my whole teaching is about, but we start there. I mean, the word in the, out in the context of the world, outside of Jesus' use of it, could, could even refer to someone who's very courteous. They're, they're gracious socially. And then, in, more in terms of virtue, it, it's, a, it's someone who's gentle. They're not rough. They're not mean. They, they're, they're, they're courteous. They, they care about other people's feelings. They, they seek to make them feel good and welcome. And these are all great things. 
but the Jesus meekness surely includes all of that, but goes much farther and deeper than that. It's, it's a, his meekness was the fundamental posture of his whole spirit as a human being. Because Jesus, who was always meek, was not always nice. And he didn't always embrace the established decorum. Right? I mean, when he cleansed the temple, there was, there was probably not an outward gentleness. I mean, he wasn't fighting people. He was not a violent person. He says, if you take up the sword, you're going to perish by the sword. My kingdom does not advance through violence. Right? Not in its real essential way, the way I preach it. The Old Testament, there were different elements because of the way God's kingdom was working. But the real, the ultimate kingdom, the, the, the essential, true blue kingdom of God didn't go by swords. Peter, you pick up that sword and you whack off the high priest's servant's ear. That's the opposite of meekness. And meekness is what conquers the devil. And you're going to get all uptight. You're going to pull your sword out and you're going you're to tell that person off. Well, you know what? You may be right and they may be wrong, but your meekness is more powerful than you're telling them off. And unless we have faith that we're going to operate in the kingdom, we're going to have an inclination to react in some kind of self-justified way, the opposite of meekness. Jesus lived without justifying himself, which is this. I'm going to come at it from a lot of different angles. The essence of meekness is trusting God to vindicate you even when you're totally right and they're totally wrong, but you look like the victim. Jesus is like, right now, I don't care who's right and wrong. I care about developing meekness in you. That's what I care about. Jesus was not always nice. He cleansed the temple. So he wasn't physically violent, but he still did physical things. He actually controlled, stop coming in here. He turned over the the, the money changers' tables, those who were exchanging the currency so people could buy their their. Uh, their, their Passover sacrifices. Jesus is just ruining their business. I mean, they see all these coins going everywhere. I mean, that didn't, that wasn't the outwardly gentle thing to do. And yet I would contend that Jesus was meek when he did that. Or how about railing the religious hypocrisy of the religious elite in Matthew 23? Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. You go over land and water <laughs> to make a disciple and make him twice as much a son of as yourself. Did anybody hear that, John? I don't want to. Can you, can you imagine how stinging he was in that scene? The emotion and the passion. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Can you? I mean, I do see some Jeremiah's. Jeremiah sobbing there too. I see tears in his eyes. I see his face red with sorrow as much with anger. It's mixed, but it's still both. But it's not what someone would naturally call gentle. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You, you travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, and yet you make him twice a son of hell as yourself. Jesus was full of emotion and incendiary actions. Think of it. Not only was he rebuking and confronting the entire religious uh, forum of his day, but the whole spirit of the world that's manifest 
in all religions, in all nations. He confronted them as one young Jewish man. All of y'all, woe to you, hypocrites. Everything about you is fake. It's whitewashed on the outside, and in the inside, it's death and uncleanness. Man, that's, there's two categories in the world at that moment. All them and Jesus. Those are the two categories. And Jesus fearlessly and, and sharply rebuked them. And I would say outwardly, naturally, it did not look meek. But the reason why he was so passionate is because he was meek. Because he was not feeling merely his own emotions. He, he was so connected to God in what we would call repentance. He was so in, at one with the Father and concerned about him that he felt God's anger for them. Meekness is not just being gentle. Meekness is feeling God's emotions before we feel our own carnal emotions. And letting those divine emotions be our own. That's meekness. In other words, meekness is without personal agenda. So my anger is not because, in other words, let me put it like this. Jesus could just have well been irritated with the Pharisees. Even though he was right about their hypocrisy, it could have, it could have annoyed him in a, in a certain selfish, carnal way. And then he could have felt wrongly justified to yell at them. Like conflicts within the church. It's like sometimes people, uh, you know, they, they quench the spirit. And then, you know, a charismatic may say that about a non-charismatic church. And you're right, they did quench the spirit. And, you know, it, it was bad. But, you know, your irritation goes beyond that. You don't seem to have a, a, a genuine passion. You seem to be like a, a charismatic Pharisee. There's, there's something. You're personally irritated. It's not just God's burden on you. And I, I, I talk with these kinds of people a lot. They're, they're, they're standing up for what's right, but there's something shrill about their approach. Some high-pitched scratching on the board that your theology is right, but you're not meek. There's no authority for what you're saying. You're making up for a lack of authority by your anger, by the energy of a revelation that you happen to be right theologically. Maybe you're yelling. I mean, I'm yelling too. I hope I'm meek, but you get the idea. You're raising your voice. The fact of the matter is you're not deeply sure God is with you on this. So you make up for it with your volume or your political power or whatever it is. But when we're sure God is with us on a matter, we're at rest. And when you have that assurance, you can do anything. And if that connection and assurance brings you to a place where you see the hypocrisy and you feel God's rage, then that's the rage you'll have. Because you're meek, you're without selfish concerns that inspire your emotions. You have God's concerns that inspire your emotions. Meek people can't fake it. If you try too hard to be calm, you'll just be carnally meek. Jesus wasn't always calm, but he was always meek. Meek people have, they have a, their, their personality is possessed by God. It takes time to cultivate this. It takes development. And being, as Jesus says in our passage, being with Him so much that He rubs off on us as we learn from Him. He says, You've got to learn from me. You have to be with me, and you have to learn from me because I'm meek and humble of heart.
I don't have a personal agenda. My only agenda is God's. That's why I can do anything. Because I'm not trying to preserve myself. I have no fears. I have nothing to lose. That's me. When we come to the place where we have nothing to lose, we have no agenda. No, when, when things irritate us or bring out a negative emotion that's inappropriate in, in, in God's sight, then that's an area up. That's where we're that's where we're working on discipleship, getting closer to Jesus and more like Jesus, to learn what meekness is, so that we're without personal agenda. See, it's one thing to be completely in the world and have a personal agenda, but when you're in the church, you can mix God's agenda and our agenda. We have to be disciples. So that the, the, the agenda that drives us is God's and not our own. Yes, okay, so look, we already talked about this. I'm going to talk about very quickly the roots of meekness, the virtues of meekness, and the way to meekness. I got up here about what time. Does anybody remember? Seriously, do you remember because you're keeping time there? Um, it's a little bit before 12, probably like 5 Okay, wow. Praise God, I feel like I got up like all day in front of me. But I'm not going to say that. Go for it. Amen. That's really what I was fishing for. <laughs> Why do I want to take so much time? <laughs> a little game for the preachers to play. I'm not really playing that. I really am. I'm going to need to come to a greater rest. What? Yeah, I'm concerned about the kids. Believe me, it's on my mind. So meekness is a gentleness that's rooted in Jesus himself. So, so then why is it called meekness? Well, listen, all the things that would normally irritate us or bring about some kind of provocation, when we've developed rest in God, there's, there, there's nothing to react to, so it brings a kind of a gentleness that may not have been there. I mean, it was Jesus' gentleness that lit fire when he was protecting the innocent rebuking the hypocrisy. But why otherwise could we operate with such a, a, a gentle, sweet spirit? Eat with him and they feel so welcome uh, by him. Because gentleness is the product of not having any other concerns, which is what rest gives us. Rest creates gentleness because there's nothing to be anxious about if we're at rest in God. So then that gives us the platform for gentleness to have a gentle spirit but it also gives us the platform to feel God's emotions if he's not being outwardly gentle. It's still meek. That's a lot of words. Does that make sense? Hopefully we'll flesh it out more as we go. Meekness is rooted in Jesus himself because it's rooted in rest. We're at rest from our own agenda. We don't have to have certain friends to be us. We don't have to have a certain amount of money. We don't have to have a certain amount of comfort. We don't have to have a certain amount of affirmation. We don't have to have all these things to be who we are in God. We've come to rest. God is enough. And when we're at rest in God, it then creates a meekness where if, if I'm without agenda, then I'm not all anxious if I feel like someone's worried about how the service is going. I mean, I care about that in the right way, I think. But if I had an agenda like it's some reflection on my quality, not that I want to be irresponsible, but it's going to make me anxious, and then I might get uptight if something doesn't work. And then I get mad at that person. This that's not going well. It's like, well, you know what? If, not that I don't care at all, but if I don't have a personal agenda, 
and I'm not going to react to that person because I'm meek. Because I'm not, I'm not putting so much stock in the way things go. I'm putting stock in God. So maybe there's some other thing we can do. Or maybe God will do something else. But I can now afford to be meek because I'm at rest. And I'm at rest because I'm not, I'm not tied in personally with how things go. So-and-so says something wrong about me and I, I need that friendship. And, and I've given it to God. Now I don't need the friendship. Now I feel better. I, you know, if they say something bad, it's not pleasant. But it's like, I'm not going to have to go anxiously defend myself. I can remain meek. Even if I see my enemy who's been bad mouthing. That may be wrong. I may need to correct them. But it doesn't mean now I have to react. Because I don't need what they say about me to define me and make me whole on the inside. I'm at rest. So even when I see them bad mouthing me, I can just. Talk to them with meekness. Meekness is rooted in rest. So that we can just afford to be the person God called us to be. Meekness has no personal agenda. But we all have it naturally. This is something. Jesus says, you've got to come to me and learn it from me. Because I've mastered the life of having no agenda. And like Mike Dow and I have been talking about recently, meekness has no agenda, and it does not operate in the spirit of entitlement. That's the key to meekness right there. It's the same, it's a different way of saying the same word. If, if we are in a spirit, like I'm entitled to something, somewhere, on some level, then sure enough, God's going to touch you there. Say, oh yeah? I may have promised you certain things, but you don't live with an attitude of entitlement. That's the opposite of meekness. Well, I'm entitled to this. I, I've earned this, or you owe this to me in my relationship. It's like, you know, those things may be true, but if you live in that attitude, that's not meekness. There's somewhere you want control. You're entitled to something. Somebody needs to be serving you. There's something about you that's become too important. Self-importance is the root of entitlement. We have a major problem in this nation with the entitlement issue. Yes, amen, finances and politics, that's all important. But what about in the church? What about in our lives and in our homes? Where there's that subtle little spirit of entitlement. You should have talked to me a different way. You should have treated me a different way. Or this, I had this coming. Or I did not deserve what you just said about me. Not just in the home, but in friendships or whatever. You know what? Technically, that may be true. It may be true you didn't deserve that person to criticize you. It may be true you're innocent. But, and that may need to be worked out. But that doesn't mean you now operate with an attitude that must insist that you change that or make it right. Can you live with that? I may insist on it for your sake, but I can't insist on it for my sake. I'm at the Lord's disposal. We're going to live in a world that's going to do things to us that are unjust and unfair, especially as things go. And we can't get all hot and bothered as if our wholeness depends on the way we're going to be treated. There's a reason why Jesus was able to look serenely in the eyes of Pontius Pilate and submit to him. The Roman was treating him wrongly, and the people putting the Roman up to it, the Jewish people, were really treating him wrong, wrongly. I mean, I'm putting it mildly. Talk about the one person that didn't deserve the brutal crucifixion he was about to get. All the things they were guilty of, they were blaming him for. All the things he was innocent of are the things they were guilty of, and yet they were crucifying him. And Jesus was able to ride the whole process without you know, pointing out how unjust it is. Pilate looks at him and says, Don't you know I have authority to crucify you or authority to let you go? And Jesus looks back, continuing to submit to the process, and says, You have no authority over me unless it's been granted you from above. 
leave it as saying, you have no authority. No, you don't. But I'm going to submit it. He doesn't even do that. He says, you don't have any authority. Unless it's been granted from above. You know, even as the king, I'm at God's disposal. Don't you understand? This is how the, de this is how the devil tempted Jesus. This is what the temptations were all about. You deserve certain things, son of God. You do deserve them. You really do. Like theologically, ultimately, you deserve these things. But will you live with an attitude that you deserve them? That's the difference. An attitude of, of entitlement destroys meekness. Meekness may even recognize things that it's entitled to, but won't have a spirit that it's entitled to. And this is where some of the abuse of faith preaching went on. It's like, yes, you're right to, to, to confess God's promises. And to, to, to remind him of his promises and in a sense to hold him to them. But when your spirit in here steps over into, I deserve this because you promised me. God smells like this. Ah, ah, ah. No, no, uh, uh. That's not faith. That's entitlement. Faith is based on meekness. Even though I know God gives me all these grand promises, I'm still the man, he's still the God. I'm still the child, he's still the father. Meekness lives in that relationship, even when God gives entitlements. It doesn't live in the spirit of entitlement. It lives in the spirit of gratitude and submission. And Jesus was like, I'm the master of I master so much, I can say that's what I'm about. I'm meek. How many meek, humble people can call themselves meek and humble? When you're that free of an agenda and you're offering yourself to others, you can. Because truly, he was meek. And he recognized it about himself. And he said, you disciples, this is what you need to learn. Because when you start to come into meekness, now you're becoming like me. Because being the son of God, being the child of the father, is all about being without personal agenda and all being about his. The devil will make sure that our meekness is challenged and God will probably double sure. God's like, I'm, I'm, when everything is raised from the dead, I'm going to work it all out. I don't care how bad it was. I don't care how unjust it was. I'm going to work it out. But I may not work it out right now for you. Because your meekness is more important than your justice right now. By the way, it's this meek servant just in the next chapter that leads justice to victory. But we have to have justice now. It's like, no, it's not justice you want. It's something for you you want. There's something that you feel entitled to. There is a place in the Son of God that's beyond all of that. It's the place of rest from which we can be meek about anything. And when we can, when we're there, we can do anything in the Spirit because our minds are clear to see in faith what God can do in the situation. If we're free and we're divested of our own entitlements and our own agenda. Do you understand now the way rest connects with meekness? Rest is when we, well, I'm getting to that, I guess, but when we, when we lay it down over and over and over again in an ultimate way, Lord, I belong to you. I'm yoked to you and I have no other yoke. Because if we try to mix it, we get all tired and burdened. We lose our rest. Meekness has a strength of spirit. Because it's not depending on circumstances. I'm not depending on your attitude toward me. I'm not depending on your opinion of me. I'm not depending on your affirmation of me. My inner person is not affected by storms on the outside. When I'm at rest, my spirit 
is not needing things externally to be conducive to, to comfort and, 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 and affirmation. It's like Jesus sleeping in the boat. How is he able to sleep physically when there's a raging storm outside? Because his spirit was at rest. He didn't feel danger from the storm. Because he knew he was getting to the other side of God. He had other things on his mind. He didn't see the storm ending in any kind of tragedy. So his spirit was so at rest, his body could actually rest. We naturally tend to be affected by the things going on outside of us. We tend to be affected by storms outside of us. Whether they be relational, emotional, real physical storms, financial storms, emotional storms. We can be affected. If things are in turmoil out there, they're in turmoil in here. Meekness is like, no, this is always constant. Because I'm at rest in God. So the outward things don't affect me in here. But here's the beauty of it. My meekness becomes power. I then affect the storm. And Jesus woke up. But he, well, he didn't have to wake up. He would have got through the storm. But now that he did wake up, he rebukes it in, in, in Jesus' name. He rebukes it. And everything comes. Because he had strength of spirit. So let me, let me encourage us with this. We need strength of spirit. John the Baptist was strong in spirit, he says. We need strength in the spirit. Not where we have bold personalities. People can have that naturally. I mean strength of spirit where we're not affected by what's going on around us. But we affect what's going on around us. And that sounds cool to say it, but you can't just do it. You and I have to come to a place of rest where meekness really tempers who we are. When you're around people like that, you can tell there's something about them that's different. They're not just faking it. They're not just calm. They're, man, they're, they're aware of God. And it actually affects their emotions practically. And you and I need to hang around people like that. Not try to fake it ourselves. You can't fake this. You can't fake countenance. Countenance comes from the inside. I'm going to give you a word. It's vivified by your spirit. It comes alive and it's animated. The contours of your face. This is why Stephen, he was on an unjust kangaroo court. He was innocent, but they were about to try him for following this false messiah. They were going to, uh, they, were, they, were, they wound up persecuting him to death, as you know. But when they turned to him amidst false <laughs> accusations, it said he had the face of an angel. He was meek at the moment when, when maybe some of us would react and demand justice. And when he did preach, he didn't preach about how innocent he was. He explained the narrative of Israel to explain why they were sinning. That's what he did. He preached. He ministered to them. He didn't insist on his rights. And then he gave them a rebuke that the Spirit was giving them. If it was him giving them, he would have said, You are trying an innocent man. No, he said, You stiff-necked people, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You did it to Moses, you did it to Joseph, and you did it to my master. And by the way, I see Jesus standing up at the right hand of God. Not sitting, standing. Because Jesus was standing up as advocate in heaven, but not on the earth. Jesus said, I'm at, you, you, are, you are standing up for me, I'm going to stand up for you in heaven. But I may not deliver you out of that. In fact, I'm not going to. But that's enough for Stephen. That's why he could remain meek and have the face of an angel. You know when you're around someone like that. I, you know, we have all these theological debates, and, and some of them are very important. And people get after each other, and 
There's all these attitudes. It's like, man, who is going to actually grow up and be a person of the Spirit? So that the quality of their life comes out of their pores and their mouth. And they give life wherever they go. That's meekness. That's a meek spirit. It's actually tempered on the inside so someone has strength of spirit because they're at rest in God. They're connected. And it actually translates into their relationships. Man, I want to be like that. Well, Jesus says, come to me and learn it from me. When you get ready to rise up against your co-worker or this situation, and I mean it's a real situation. It's not just a little controversy. It's really like they're 100% wrong and they're 100% right. So you better check with me and see how I'm doing with that. What I'm doing with it. Because I don't care about that situation as much as I care about whether or not you're going to be like me. And that does not come cheaply, man. You know how we get there? We go through suffering. That's, I'm, I'm all over the map. I had a, a, an order. I was going to give this to you, and that part's coming later, but I'll say it now. Maybe list it later. These things are cultivated, man. The Bible heroes that have meekness about them. Moses was the meekest man on earth. It's because he spent time with God. He was like a God man. And the way he related to people came from this inner place he had with God. The way he responded to problems, and he was not 100% perfect, but he had a lot of meekness, came from this inner place. His resources were inside, not outside. Man. Come on, that's a good word. Moses' resources were inside. Sometimes that's a good step for me. Because sometimes when you're confronted with something, I'm confronted with something, we just have to remember, wait a minute, hold on. I'm about to do this wrong. I've got more resources than this. I'm deeper than this. i got the Spirit's character inside. Paul was meek. He, he, he wasn't falsely humble when he said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. That was not, oh, you know, no, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that great. You guys are great. That's not what he was saying. He was comparing his weight as an apostle with them. He says, I'm not inferior to them. And elsewhere he said, I worked harder than all of them. As far as that goes, I'm not going to get below them. But I know in my spirit, I know the man that got saved. I was doing a lot worse than them before they were saved. It is a testimony to mercy. I really am the least in that sense. I know. I mean, I really, I was not one of the twelve. I had this odd kind of coming to the Lord. He uses a word that could be translated abortion. I was untimely born. Something was like something. Ne- I was a, like a negative sort of thing, you know. But I'm not all brought down by that. That's just that is that is who I was. I don't really belong in the league with these guys. Now I am what I am by the grace of God. You could go the other side and not be meek and see. Oh no, I'm too humble for you to use me, Lord. He didn't do that either. It's like no, I work harder than them all put together. Ain't nobody works. He's moving that gospel like a train going where most of our New Testament comes from. And he still meant it when he said, I'm the least of them all. This is what I was. He appeared to me. I received that and I'm going to move on. I was violent aggressive. I was persecuting Christians. I called the true Messiah a false imposter. That's a false imposter, not a true imposter. Very important distinction. But that just, that's the way it is. And he, he snatched me up and now I'm here. And I'm different. That's who I was, and I'm just not in league with these guys. As far as what I do, yeah. As far as being in league with them, I'm not even one of the 12. I don't know if I'll be sitting one of those thrones over the 12 tribes. I don't know how all that works, but it is what it is. It just, that's meekness. It's a spirit that's tempered. It's not anxiously trying to be something. Trying to achieve something on the shoulders of other people. 
come out in the wrong way. Stepping stones to something great for you. Meekness doesn't care about any of that. Because it's a rest in God, whatever God wants. That was Paul's attitude. Stephen, able to have the, 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 the face like an angel. We must develop meekness so we can give spiritual energy to one another that's real. And not just flout it on Facebook. The great, I mean, it's, it's a great tool, but some of the stuff I read on Facebook from people is so shrill and self-serving. And it's like, congratulations, you now have an audience thanks to Facebook, but you don't have one in reality. The quality you're trying to come across with is, is, is not something God gave. And if you were meek, even though you had the power to speak on Facebook, you'd shut your face, book. <laughs> Seriously. It's like yelling at people when you're in the car. Big deal. You're driving the Hummer. Idiot! <laughs> and there's some guy who's walking. <laughs> the devil's drawing people out. Come on, talk like you got something. Talk like you got authority. Come on. Because then you think you will when you don't. You shout out on Facebook when you're talking to a demon. He ain't leaving that body. You don't have any authority. You're not cultivating meekness. We have all these substitutes. You see what I'm talking about? You can't get this overnight. You sure can't get it on Facebook. You have to be tempered like gold through fire. So the roots of meekness are rest. The virtues of meekness, I'm going to give you a quick list. I've already given you a bunch of them. And then we'll get closer to the end. Well, I've been going about 50 minutes, so I'll close it quick. The virtues of meekness, it's the essence of discipleship. If you're developing meekness, you're developing the image of Jesus. That's one of his virtues. It's the essence of discipleship. Jesus said, you learn this from me, meekness and humility. Later he says, obey all that I command you. Because all those commandments are like, they're like spokes on a hub that is uh, meekness. You, you and I can't obey the commandments of Jesus without the spirit of meekness. Where we, where we um, give up our rights to ourselves, we give up our agendas, and we give up our spirit of intelligence. The virtues of meekness. Meekness has great reward. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, which can also be translated the land. It's interesting, the massive lack of meekness that's fighting over the land of Israel to this day. I think God will look down from heaven on some of the people fighting over Israel. No matter what you think of Israel, God gave them that land. And God's looking down from heaven at some of the people around them that are trying to get that land. And he's saying, if that land were really yours, you could afford to be meek about it. You wouldn't have to be so savage. And then, if it were really yours, you would, you'd have it in your spirit, and you would just inherit it instead of fighting for it. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the land. And then that reverberates into eternal reward for us. If we live meekly now, we will be rewarded in eternity. Maybe not now, but meekness is always tied to eternity. Again, this is actually unpopular teaching nowadays. It sounds to people like it's irrelevant because I'm only talking about heaven. I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about the new heavens and the new earth. What I'm talking about is the future. If we're not anchored in the future, we will be irrelevant today. 
Because if we're not anchored to the future, we can't afford to be meek if there's no expectation of a reward that's beyond this age. If there's no expectation of that, then by what are we motivated? We're motivated by a lot in a wealthy and prosperous culture. But what about if that's taken from us? Or what if we're sent away somewhere else? Then if we don't have tangible rewards before us, what will motivate us? What motivated the apostles and Jesus? What is taught all throughout the Gospels, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout Paul's teaching in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, etc., 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 etc.? 1 Corinthians 15, we will not sleep, we will be changed. We will come into a new world. Death will be defeated. And then he says, therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not if you labor now as a youth pastor, maybe you'll be a big pastor one day. Or if you labor now in the little things, maybe you'll make a lot of money someday. Those are not the rewards that should motivate us. Our motivation is one day we're going to stand before the king. And he's going to be generous with rewards based on my faithfulness on the earth. Based on my loyalty. Therefore, I can afford to be rich or I can afford to be poor. I can afford many friends. I can, I can afford few friends. Because I'm not anchored in what this world offers me. I'm anchoring, I'm anchored in what he offers me. There is reward. Happier the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You read the Sermon on the Mount about rewards. Prayer, giving, fasting, it's all talked about. He'll reward you. There's nothing wrong with wanting rewards as long as they are those rewards. When those rewards are real to us, we are released to be meek. We have no agenda here. We could pick up chairs, sweep, whatever it is. Be stepped on, have a lot, then lose it all. It doesn't matter. Come on now. The virtues of meekness, it has great reward. The virtue of meekness, when we're meek, we have clarity of faith. We can see supernatural things easier when we're meek. That's one of the virtues of meekness. It's a place of faith. When we hear about something that needs urgent prayer, you can get real tight and pray out of that. I think I used the illustration last time of Evan cutting his finger. And I got home and I'm yelling and screaming all the right things, but I wasn't at rest in my spirit. The first goal for everything is rest. And we're better off if we're always practicing getting there so we can get there quicker when something comes up suddenly or already be there. And then from that place, it could be a cold, it could be leukemia. It's like, in Jesus' name. I'm not, oh, look, oh, it's a cold? Oh, let me pray. I got so much pain. Lord, Lord, touch her cold, because if you don't, she's going to get better anyway. So I'm, I'm all okay. But if it's life or death, if it's life or death, it, you know, we're affected from the outside. The virtues of meekness is we have a clarity of faith, whether it's a big problem or a little problem. Because we're at rest. So our prayers are meek, which means they carry authority. Man, I love this. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not joking when I say this. I wish I could tell you this in a better way. I'm a little, I don't know, on a caffeine thing, even though I, don't, I didn't drink any coffee. What, the, one of the virtues of meekness is it's non-judgmental. There is zero potential to judge someone else or criticize them when you're meek. It, it doesn't even exist. It doesn't matter how bad they really are and how much the other people need to know about it so that they can be warned. It doesn't, it's just not there to speak critically of someone else because there's zero agenda. You may have to go deal with it in a meek way, but not in a judgmental way. That's a virtue of meekness. 
Another virtue of meekness is victory. Jesus led, as the meek servant, he led justice to victory. And I have here Matthew 21, 5. Does anybody have their Bible open? What is it? I, I want to see if that's a mistake or not. Can you read that, Matthew 21, 5? Yeah, it shows you how on the spot I was. I lost my meekness and forgot the power of that verse. How did Jesus come as conquering king to Jerusalem but meek and humble on a donkey? And that's the way he won his victory. When we're not meek, we never win. And if we win, it's only a worse loss later. Meekness always victory. Always. Meekness always wins. Always. Not sometimes. Not most of the time. Always. Always. Meekness wins. The low road, genuine from your spirit, the low road always wins. Always. Always. Victory. Meekness and victory are hand in hand. Meekness is precious in God's sight. You don't have to read it. It's 1 Peter 3, 4, speaking of the submitted wife or woman at home, not adorned with the the, the externals, but with a, a meek and quiet spirit. It says it's precious in the sight of God. And it's not, it's not just for women that Peter's speaking to. The, the preciousness, there's something precious to God about anyone with a meek spirit. It's precious to God doesn't make him like you more. It's just something about your spirit is more precious to him than it would be if we were self-serving and demanding. That's just not as precious to God. Say what you want about all your principles about grace. God's a person. There's certain things he appreciates and certain things he doesn't. And he may love you the same as his child, but when you carry a meekness, there's something more precious to him than something that's self-serving and demanding. And meekness yields power because we're at rest from the things of this age we are then released to operate in the power of the spirit because i already gave you most of these things more spontaneously i'm just going to list them quickly when i'm telling you about the way to meekness the way to meekness is to be yoked to jesus to settle that score my life purpose is not any agenda of my own but his to be yoked to Jesus means no spirit of entitlement. What he gives me is, is his prerogative. Even when he fulfills the promises he gave me, I receive them without a spirit of entitlement, but with a spirit of gratitude. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, so we settle it, we settle it at the outset. My, my purpose in life is to be in union with Jesus and to serve his purposes, not my own. That's the beginning right there. We settle that. We take his yoke versus agenda or entitlement. One very slight variation of that, meekness is always Jesus-centered. I mean, if you want to take some deep breaths when you're upset, I think that's helpful. That's fine. Whatever helps you get there. But ultimately, we don't want a meekness that's not yielded by the presence of Jesus himself, by our relationship with him. And by our vision of his beauty in the midst of whatever situation we're in. Meekness is Jesus-centered. It's anchored in a relationship with him. And he is with us. Makes himself available in, in whatever is challenging our meekness. 
Another thing very quickly about weakness is we must learn from Jesus. This goes with the other things. We must be deliberately discipled from him, and here's how we do that. When anything comes up in our life of any intensity, whether it's positive or negative, we have to be on the alert. What is the Lord bringing out of me that's there that needs to change? Especially in suffering. It's like right now, I'm, you, can, you might say, I'm suffering in a way that I don't even think is right with God. It might be a sickness that's not from him, of course. Or it may be something that's, that's more sensible, like persecution. And, and some of it may need to be rebuked by the, you know, rebuke the devil, and others of it may just need to be walked through. But any kind of suffering, we have to observe our reaction to it. And then say, all right, now, how can I cultivate the meekness of Jesus as a response to this? Lord, what in my heart is not at rest in you? And that's creating, therefore, a response where I'm not meekly responding. I'm anxiously or angrily or fearfully responding. We just cannot, we cannot develop meekness without time and suffering. Even positive events can evoke things in us, but mostly it happens in suffering. You, you, you just cannot refine gold without fire. It can't happen. You, you can't make authentic people followers of the Lord without some kind of resistance. And we don't have to be martyrs. We do in the way that we witness for Jesus. But I'm talking about you don't always have to be like an, an, about to, to enter the guillotine. There can be even little things. But what is it provoking in my spirit? That's the question. And then how can I learn the way Jesus would respond and make my spirit stronger than my circumstances? That is the way to meekness. All of this must be done in the context of community. We've got to talk about it with others. Here's what I'm going through, and here's the way I'm responding. Some of it stinks. Some of it's pretty good. Okay, brother, sister, we're with you on this. Let's talk this through here. i got some verses for you. Oh, you know what? I'm sensing in my spirit it has to do with some kind of fear on something else. I think they're connected. Let's pray about that. Okay, you talk it through, and you get some prescriptions from others, and they help pray you through, and then they help keep you accountable. This thing has to be done together. It can't just be suffering in Jesus. It has to be Jesus, suffering, and community. So we could talk it through, and every moment becomes a growth moment. The spiritual disciplines are another way to meekness, spending time with Jesus. And I don't mean having a little prayer time. I mean when it's necessary, raw, honest prayers, where you are dealing with your stuff and your feelings. You're unloading them on God and not just having your nice devotions time. I'm talking about connecting person to person. God's not a big, fragile piece of crystal that if you say something you're feeling that's honest, he's going to break And now you don't have any relationship with God because you honestly talked about these certain things made you mad or these certain things caused fear in you. We've got to connect with God for real, man. And God can deal with us as we're honest with him as part of worshiping in spirit and in truth. I mean, that, that Samaritan woman didn't hold much back from Jesus. Well, he's not my husband. Oh, good for you. That's right. He's not. And he took that and ran with it. It's just that little bit of honesty, that rawness. Man, he could deal with that. He can't deal with our religious piety, but he can deal with reality. Now, he may also correct you for being having a wrong attitude during your reality. But that's better than saying nothing. I think the best is being real and also being submitted. But that's just my opinion. Spiritual disciplines, disciplines like real prayer, real fasting, and meditating on the word as we weave it into daily life. And then meekness, as I said before. Is rooted. It comes by the way of hope, I should say. When we actually have a hope of eternal reward, 
that creates meekness in us. If we don't have a hope of eternal reward, we won't have real meekness. There's teaching today that's actually diminishing the importance of the kingdom coming. They rightly emphasize the kingdom now. That's right. But they wrongly de-emphasize the coming Lord and the coming kingdom and the coming rewards. They wrongly de-emphasize it. And what they don't know is they're undermining discipleship in the church because discipleship is the development of meekness. And meekness comes when we have hope of a future reward. It does not come any other way. Or at least it doesn't come without that. Though there are other ingredients. Yes. Praise God. Mike, remind me what time we have to be out here. I ask you this every week and I at 2 o'clock. So we have over an hour. Let's spend some time in prayer. Can we stand together?